Matt, this is Laura in the ER. Matt? Yeah? Matt, you're still asleep. I'm not. You are, I can tell. Time's it. 2.30. Matt, please turn on a light and wake up. There's been an accident at the mine. Matt Rutledge groaned. Oh, friggin' mine, he muttered. Dr. Butler has activated the disaster protocol. Matt, are you awake? I'm awake. <clears throat> I'm awake, he pronounced hoarsely. Nine times seven is fifty-six. The Miami basketball team is the heat. The fifth president... Okay, okay, I believe you. From college through medical school and residency, and now into his life as an internist, it had always been a chore for Matt to shut his mind down enough to fall asleep, but not nearly the challenge of subsequently waking up. Laura Williams knew this trait of his as well as any nurse, having worked with him in the ER of Montgomery County Regional Hospital for two years before his decision to switch over to private practice. Light on? Feet on the floor? Laura demanded. I'm up, I'm up. Was it a cave-in? he asked. He sensed a tightening in his gut at even saying the words. I think so. Ambulances are out there, but no one's been brought in here yet. Okay, I'm up and dressed and on my way. Great. The first rescue unit won't be here for a little while, so drive slowly. I know, I know. Motorcycle equals donor cycle. He pulled on his boots. The rest of the team on their way in? All except Dr. Crook. So far he hasn't answered his phone or his pager. Please let it stay that way, Matt thought. Robert Crook was a carriage-trade cardiologist, one of the senior medical citizens in the multi-specialty Belinda Medical Group. He had been the most vocal in opposition to Matt's move from the ER into their practice. Ultimately, though, those who thought a well-liked Belinda born and raised, Harvard-trained internist and ER specialist might just help fill the desperate need for a primary care doc won out over Crook. Well, I should be there in ten minutes. Make it fifteen. Okay, okay. And Matt? Yes? Nine times seven is sixty-three, not fifty-six. I knew that. Matt set the phone down, pulled his dark brown hair back into a ponytail, and secured it with a rubber band. For as long as he and Ginny had known one another, he had worn his hair short. Not exactly a crew cut, but almost. And by her decree, she was the only one allowed to barber him. Since her death, he hadn't done more than trim his sideburns. The stud in his right earlobe had followed a year or so later, and the tattoo on his right deltoid a few months after that. It was a masterful rendering, done from a photograph, of the white-blossomed hawthorn tree in their yard, Ginny's favorite. Matt went to his one-car garage and fired up his maroon Harley Electroglide. In addition to the hog, he had a 900cc Kawasaki Roadster and a 250cc Honda dirt bike all of which he could pretty much maintain himself. As he took the six-mile ride to the hospital, Matt wondered if this latest disaster was yet another monument to the Belinda Coal and Coke Company's cutting safety corners wherever possible. Despite the constant pressure for modernization and improved safety that he and a few other brave souls tried to keep on the mine, little had changed. BC&C was persistently unwilling to do anything but the barest minimum to ensure the well-being of the miners. It was that way with the massive conglomerate today, just as it had been that April night, 22 years ago, when the ceiling of Tunnel C-9 caved in, crushing to death three miners, including shift foreman Matthew Rutledge, Sr.
The ER at the modern 120-bed Montgomery County Regional Hospital had a patient capacity of 12, including rooms specially equipped for orthopedics and pediatrics, as well as room 10, the crash suite, for major medical or surgical emergencies. Two surgeons and a GP were waiting by the nurse's station when Matt arrived. In addition, almost certainly poised over in the lab, was Hal Sawyer, the chief of pathology and Matt's uncle. Hal, part mountain man, part community activist, part playboy, all scholar, was Matt's godfather, and the major reason he had decided on a career in medicine. Over the twenty years since the cave-in of Tunnel C-9, Hal had been as close to a father as Matt had. Matt hadn't been in the ER more than a minute when a pickup screeched into the ambulance bay bearing the first casualty. He accompanied two nurses to the truck. If the miner, muddy from a mix of limestone, coal dust, dirt, and perspiration, was any indication of the carnage in the mine, it was going to be a long night. His bloodied leg had an obvious compound fracture of the femur. Matt followed the litter to the ortho room. Brian O'Neill reached the door simultaneously with Matt. He was a top-notch orthopedic surgeon and Matt's closest friend on the medical staff. You first, Matt said. Together they moved to the bedside and assisted the nurse in cutting away the young miner's clothes. I'm Dr. O'Neill, the orthopedist, Brian said. This is Dr. Rutledge. He's a veterinarian, but he's a damn fine one. We're going to take good care of you. Uh, thanks, sir, the young man managed. I'm Fenton, Robbie Fenton. What in the heck happened down there, Robbie? O'Neill asked as Matt began a rapid physical assessment. It was Daryl Teague, sir. He he went berserk. He's been acting a little tetch for a while, but tonight he was operating the CM and he just went off. You know what a CM is. A continuous miner? That monster machine that scoops up coal and puts it onto the conveyor belt, Matt said. Twelve ton or more every minute. Matt nodded for him to go on. Well... Early on in the shift, T got into a shoving match with one of the guys, Alan Riggs. I don't know what it was about. T's been like that for a while. Picking fights, complaining that people were out to get him, that sort of thing. Well, a bunch of us broke it up between him and Riggs. Then a little while later, T goes after Riggs with the CM. He runs right over him. I mean, right over him. Then he goes on and takes out maybe half a dozen supports. That's when the roof caved in. Dr. Rutledge, we need you, Laura Williams said from the doorway. Matt had been so mesmerized by Robbie Fenton's account that he had completely forgotten about the deluge that was about to hit. Now the ER was in beehive mode. There's a lack in three, a beauty. I've ordered skull films, Laura said. Matt went to the on-call room and quickly changed into scrubs. Laura, breathless, caught him again just as he was leaving. Matt? Dr. Easterly needs you right away in the crash suite. She's got Teague in there. You'll have to do the lack later. There was quite a crowd working in room 10. One glance at the overhead monitor told Matt why. Heart rate 140, blood pressure 80 over 40. John Lee, the nurse working beside the gurney, caught Matt's eye and made a brief thumbs-down sign. Somewhere beyond the wall of technicians, nurses, and GP Judy Easterly, Daryl Teague was on the verge of checking out. What's up? Startled, Judy Easterly swung around, then came over to him. She was currently in her seventh or eighth month of pregnancy, and looked as if she would have chosen to be any place in the world at that moment other than where she was. This is the guy who caused all this, she whispered. I know, Matt whispered back. Is he bleeding somewhere? 
Not that I can tell, she replied, still whispering. The rescue guy said his BP was all right on the way in. Not anymore. Obvious fractures? None, Easterly said. He's moving all extremities. You know, if I had known I was going to end up with this sort of crunch with the very guy responsible for the disaster, I would have stayed home. Listen, Judy, why don't you go ahead home right now, Matt said. You've got things under reasonable control here, and it looks as if you and the kid could use some rest. Easterly started to protest, then suddenly thanked him. I really appreciate this, she said. Matt glanced again at the monitor as he moved into Easterly's spot at the bedside. Then he stopped short, staring down in disbelief at the man whose insane rage had just killed at least one of his co-workers. Daryl Teague's face was covered with fleshy lumps, at least twenty of them, some pea-sized but some quite a bit larger, and one, just in front of his left ear, approximating a walnut. Almost certainly they were neurofibromas, bundles of nerve tissue mixed with spindly fibrous cells. Cause, unknown. Cure, none known. Daryl Teague was well on his way to becoming an elephant man. Even more startling to Matt was that Teague was the second case of such a condition he had seen in the past four or five months. Laura, Matt asked, could you please call Dr. Hal Sawyer in the lab and ask if he can come over as soon as possible? Matt quickly turned his attention to the miner. Teague was conscious and still breathing on his own, but his skin was mottled and his lips were a grayish purple. John, anything ordered for his pressure? Uh, nothing yet, doctor. Hang some dopamine standard drip. Run it wide open until we see what happens. Get a catheter in him and keep his volume up. Laura Williams returned. Dr. Sawyer will be over shortly, she said. Matt glanced up at the EKG monitor. The size of the beats on the tracing appeared much smaller than normal. He filed the 